to John chapter eight, uh, 19 as we continue to worship our awesome God. You know, one of the things that I've been convicted of in my life as I continue to be sanctified by the Holy Spirit is that this time is not a time of passive engagement. It is an act of worship for us all. I get the chance to stand up here and preach God's word, and it is worshipful for me, but it's also a part of your worship as you listen, as we open God's word together, as we see who he is and what he has done for us. But let me ask you this question. When was the last time you were so shocked you couldn't find the words to describe it? There has to be a time when that happened. You know, especially since April Fool's was just around the corner. I know if you have parents, I know my kids tried uh, to do things to, not me because I wasn't here, but to my wife, my beautiful wife, uh, who graciously accepted all of those things. But when was the last time that something happened that you were so shocked you couldn't find the words? See, when I read this section of chapter 19, that is what I am faced with, this, a- this aspect of how do I put to words the description of what is happening to my God, to my Savior, Jesus Christ. Was he not the long-awaited Messiah that Israel was promised way back in Genesis 3? Was he not the one who the Bible spoke of, the prophets spoke of. And think about all that he has done so far. He has been so clear in John. John has been so clear as to who Jesus is. In our world, our world says that Jesus was a good man. The Bible and Jesus himself does not allow that. Think about all he has done. He has raised the dead. Who else could raise the dead? He has made people born blind see again. He made a new creation in that person's eyes so that they could see. He fed 5,000 people. He made the lame walk. He, He is the living water to the thirsty, and he is bread to the hungry. Has there ever been or ever will be one who loves God as Jesus, God the Father as Jesus, God the Son ever did, or even loved his neighbors as he did? In John 18 that we were looking at last week, in, chapter, in verse 4, we see how the people would rather have a violent criminal than the one who did all of these things. If there was any man who walked this earth that deserved to be treated with honor by his fellow humankind, it was Jesus. So why, you may ask? Well, again, I point to who he is but also because of how he behaved to the cause he was committed to. Jesus deserved to be crowned, to be robed, and honored, and obey. But what we see here is not what happens. It's different. So if you have your Bibles with you, we'll be reading from John chapter 19 all the way to 16a, which says this. The word of the Lord says this, Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And struck him with their hands. And Pilate went out again and said to them, See? I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Behold, the man! 
When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, Take him yourself and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. And the Jews answered him, We have a law. And according to that law, he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. Verse 8. And when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it has been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend, and everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seats at the place called the Stone Pavement in an Aramaic Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. And they cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And the priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. And this is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we come together to continue to worship you through the preaching of your word. Open up our ears and our hearts. Help us to stay focused and attentive to what you have to say through your word. Lord, we pray for other churches that are gathering in the same way we are who are gathering to worship and to praise you, to preach your word. And, and we pray for the church here in London, that we would be bold with the witness, that, we would, that you would use us, this church here in London, to declare who you are to this broken city, that your kingdom would grow here in London, that you would call people to yourself through the faithful witness of your people here. And Lord, we specifically think of West London Alliance, that you would bless them as they seek to be faithful disciples who make disciples of Jesus Christ. And we pray for Pastor Jude, that you would use him, that you would use him to declare the good news of Jesus Christ today, and that you would edify the body there and give the elders wisdom as they shepherd the flock. So Lord, as we continue to gather to worship you, uh, Lord, there's no possible way that I can do anything to turn this out well. So, Lord, by your Spirit, will you not do that? God, use this Spirit, use this sermon for your glory, for the joy of your people, and salvation of the lost. And amen. As you can tell, we are quickly, and as my brother Peter said to, uh, to us as we were doing communion, we're quickly getting to Easter. As a note, make sure that you have on your calendars Good Friday as we gather together at 10 a.m. But as the text continues on, as the narrative continues on, as the story continues on, you can feel the tension beginning to build as we ourselves get ready to gather and remember what God has done for us through His Son, Jesus Christ. 
But in verse 1, we see a reminder back to 38, because Pilate had declared Jesus, Jesus innocent. But then we see the, that he took Jesus, even though he, he declared him to be innocent, and he flogged him. Why? We see later that I think Pilate's hopes was that he would, be, uh, that he would display Jesus in such a manner as worthless and, and minimal and not a threat at all to the people that the people will hopefully move on to something else and be satisfied. That their bloodlust would be satisfied. So he beats Jesus. He has Jesus beat him. As I was studying this, I was, I was told that there are three different types of flogging. I didn't know that. So you learn something new every day, right? Well, here's yours today. Unless you're smarter than I am. Which is possible. The flogging that was done by the Romans, there's three different types of flogging. The first one was done for misdemeanors, for hooligans, people who are causing a ruckus in the marketplace, for example. Maybe they were publicly drunk or something like that, and they would take them and they would beat them. Just a little light, little beating. I don't know if there's a such thing as a light beating, but it was a light beating. And then there, there was a second one that would be a little bit more severe, I don't know what type of gauge they did to say that, but again, it was a little bit more severe. The third flogging that would happen to an individual was the worst. It was the type of flogging that we saw, for example, in The Passion of the Christ in that movie, where they would use a whip, or with a whip uh, at the end of it was bits of, uh, of metal maybe or of stone or bone and as, as a soldier or the torturer would come up and, and, and whip the person who was receiving it, it would wrap around their rib cage and, and pull skin, sometimes entrails. A lot of people didn't even survive it. That was the type of punishment that they would actually do as they sent people to the most horrific death possible. The cross. The torture of the cross starts with the beating, as they did that. But here we see Jesus coming, and we, we assume that he is being flogged twice, actually. And this first flogging that he has is just that little, tight little one where they kind of beat his face a little bit. Just a little, you know. But that last one that we will get into as well... It was done to the extent where the torturers were either, either too tired to keep going, the individual was, too t was dead, or the commander said, stop. Very sadistic. It was brutal. So the type of beating that Jesus had at this verse 1 was probably the first one. Later followed up with the second one. This is what happens. So Jesus was probably first beaten in this way. The king of kings is being mocked. Do you see how they treat him? In verses 2 to 3, the, the mockery continues on as the, as the Roman soldiers come and they make this, this crown of, of thorns of two to three inch 
long thorns and as they wound it together after they have beaten him they come up and they take this and they they shove it down on his head and I remember once that one of my children was jumping up on one foot going hey look daddy what can I do and and they fell backwards and hit their head on uh, on our we have these uh, baseboard heaters and she's fine I think but the blood from that cut was everywhere. And I, and I don't mean like a little, you know, the kid comes and says, oh, it's gushing. No, I mean it was everywhere. Like the shirt was gone. So just imagine that as, as these soldiers come and they, 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 they push down on, on Jesus' head the crown of thorns and it pierces and it hits the skull, the bone, and all that blood begins to trickle down because head wounds bleed a lot. They mock him even more. They wrap a a purple robe around him, symbolizing royalty is what purple usually did, but here is an act of mockery. And what what an amazing and stark and ironic contrast to the fact that Jesus truly is the king. And let's recap how the Gospel of John has told us this many times. In John 1.1, right off the bat, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is the incarnate God. In John 10.30, he says, I and the Father am one. In John 1 again, 49, it says, Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And this is the Son of God who they mock. And as I said last week, the thing that boggles my mind, that blows my mind, is the self-control that Jesus is displaying. Because in a, in, a, in a thought, with one word, we know that his angels whom he created would come down and defend him. Would wipe all those soldiers off the face of the planet. We've seen examples of that even in the Old Testament, where the whole Babylonian army was blind by one word. Here is the man who is not only king of kings and lord of lords, and he's being beaten quietly, he says. So the soldiers mock him, and they would approach him. They would bow their knee in in some sort of display of, of submission, but really it was mockery, and as they bowed their knee, they would say, Hail, king of the Jews! And they would get their battle hardened arms, and they would smack him in the face. Not a not a Not a little tap, but a smack. Why? Why would he go silently? Why would he not call on the angels down to wipe these puny people off the face of the planet? Why? Because he could. And he would have been just to do that. And and when you answer that question, I think, I hope... That is when an overwhelming feeling should come to your mind and your heart. He did it to save his, as the Bible says, his elect, his people. To show how he loves his people, who he has chosen, who he has called out. To show us the extent of his people's sin. To show his grace, his mercy, his love, his holiness, his justice. If you are in Christ, if you are His, 
If you have heard his voice and are following him, if you have repented and believed that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior, that's what love looks like. He did it for you. If you're his. What the king, what the king of kings, what kind of king of kings do you want? What are the king deserves every every ounce of who you are. So they mocked him in verses one to three, but in verses four to five, four to eight, it doesn't stop there. There's a condemning of the king as it continues on. In verses four and five, once again, Pilate comes to his balcony. He presents Jesus and delivers his verdict. And picture the state of the Son of God as he was just beaten, as his head is, is saturated with blood, as he's wrapped in this robe. Think about who he is, swollen, bruised, bleeding from those cruel and ridiculous thrones aware as he is that it is the people who must choose the man who will receive the governor's amnesty. He pres- Pilate presents Jesus as beaten, harmless, and pathetic figure to make their choice as easy as possible because as he says, I find no guilt in him. Jesus isn't a threat to Rome. He isn't guilty of sedition. And Pilate doesn't think Jesus will even provoke a rebellion. Three times Pilate says these words that he hasn't found any guilt in Jesus. He proclaimed as lamb without spot or fault. Jesus will be the lamb of God slain as a sacrifice for his people's sin. And here's the thing. Pilate is mistaken even in those words. Pilate is right when he says that Jesus bears no guilt. But on the question of whether Jesus is a threat to Rome... Oh no, he's a threat. Whether Jesus is a king about whose threatened conquest he should be concerned, Pilate doesn't, couldn't, sorry, he couldn't be more wrong. As one person said, Pilate may not fear him. The soldiers may boldly sneer at him, but even as they do, so they follow the script in which he will rise to power by lowering himself unto death. He could not be less threatening He could not be less threatening as he obeys his father, like a lamb silent before it shears. And yet there exists no greater threat to all impudent human rulers who refuse the warning, as we see in Psalm 2, kiss the son lest he be angry. As he says, Pilate says, behold the man. As he continues to mock Jesus, you see how they treat him? But he's also ridiculing the Jewish leaders. He says, look, he says, you see that man who you find so dangerous that you think he he needs to die? You look at him. See, literally, look at him. Look what I did. He's no threat. Here John makes sure we see some deeper irony as well. Here Indeed, is the man, the word made flesh, as we see in John 1:14. And all those who were watching were too blind to see it at the time, but this man was displaying his glory. The glory of the one and only Son, and the very disgrace and pain and weakness and brutalization that Pilate was showing to prove he wasn't in, needed in this process. Here is the eternal word of God. 
The thought that he meekly submitted to be led out like this as cattle, as an object of scorn, with an old purple robe on his shoulders and a crown of thorns on his head, his back bleeding and scorching as, he, as his head bled from those thorns, to be led in front of a crowd that just stared at him tauntingly and howling and thirsty for blood. Isn't that a thought to think about? 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. One man put it this way, since the world began, the sun never shone on a more surprising spectacle, both for angels and men. It's funny how as Christians we take so much time to celebrate Christmas, and Easter is kind of the afterthought. I know that's not true, but sometimes I wonder. If Easter didn't happen, Christmas means nothing. I also don't think we can see any bigger showing of humility and patience and self-control and restraint and nobility. Proverbs 19.11 says, Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. I read things like this. I read what Jesus goes through, and I think, man, I really have a lot more sanctification that needs to happen in my life which I have seen many people actually lack in over these last couple of years, including myself. We get so angry about things. Reflect on this. Have you seen any more glory than this? Never was one worthy of more honor treated with more infamy. Never was more power restrained in the face of more provocation. Never was one with more worthy treated with more disregard by those dependent upon his goodwill and kindness. What is going on in their minds after seeing all that Jesus has done? That they think that he is, that they are in control of this situation. In verse 6. What type of response do you think would be, should be replied here? See, Pilate's looking for the response of, okay, that's good enough, let him go. But the response of the people in that crowd is very different in verse 6. Crucify him, crucify him. They want to kill the one whose life results in the law, the one whose existence makes law understandable and necessary. And as they try to kill him, they pretend to be concerned about the law as they try to kill the one who gave the law. As we see in verse 7, we have a law, they say. They come and they use the law against its giver and, and rationale. And when they charge Jesus with blasphemy, that Jesus claims to be the Son of God, they are saying two things. That Jesus is claiming to be from the line of the King of David, as God promised. The one who would fulfill the long-awaited Messiah that, God, that has been prophesied for thousands of years before. And second... They are saying that Jesus is divine, that Jesus is equal to God. Look, like I was saying before, if someone comes to you and says, oh, Jesus was just a nice guy, the people who killed Jesus didn't think that. They didn't think that he was just a nice guy who had some nice words to say. 
They had a clear understanding of the things that Jesus was proclaiming. They just didn't believe it. And here he is, the King of kings and Lord of lords, on his way to the cross. They just didn't see that they were playing the part where Jesus would be the sacrifice for the sins of his people. So in verse 8, Pilate hears those words as the, as the crowd declares that, he is, he, that Jesus has been declaring himself to be Son of God. And Pilate, he looks at Jesus and he, he brings him back into his headquarters and he's, uh, he's afraid. The text doesn't say why he's afraid. But sometimes I wonder, as we know in other gospel accounts, he could have been worried that his standing between Caesar, the king of Rome, could be threatened by this man named Jesus because the Jews are going to be all upset because they've already sent letters complaining about Pilate to Caesar. Or maybe he's thinking about all that Greek and Roman mythology that they grew up with. Maybe he's thinking about the dream that his wife told him about when his wife says, you don't crucify this man. Maybe when he heard the Jewish people declaring that he has himself declared himself to be son of God, that he was, that's what caused him to be afraid as he was even more afraid. And Pilate was found, has found no guilt in this man. No guilt. This is a really classic case of fear of man sin, really. Instead of leading, he's more concerned with his popularity than he is leading. But Pilate has found no guilt in Jesus. And the Jews think Jesus should die because he has made himself out to be the Son of God. And they don't think he is. And that Jesus is going to die for blasphemy. But John shows us that Jesus is precisely what he is claiming to be. And it is going through exactly what God has planned. In verses 9 to 11, we see this question come up. Who really has authority? Pilate is scared, so he goes back and he talks to Jesus. And folks, I can pray that I have the boldness that Jesus displays here. I pray that I can have the boldness that we see in Acts 5 with Peter and John declaring to the very people that are yelling, crucify Jesus, as they, as they encounter the Sanhedrin, and the Sanhedrin tells them, stop preaching the gospel, and their response is what? Who am I supposed to obey? Man or God? In verse 9, Pilate asks, where is he from? And Jesus doesn't answer, which is difficult for me, because if someone asks me a question, I have a tendency to say more than I should. But Jesus doesn't say anything. As he was before in John 8, 32, or 23, it says, He said to them, You are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Or in John 18, 36, he says, Jesus has already answered this question, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to, over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. But here he doesn't answer Pilate. 
And Pilate becomes indignant, and you can see that in verse 11, in the tone that he's using there. Jesus, don't you understand that I have the power? And I love how Jesus responds in verse 11. (laughs) I just love it. You can picture it almost, really. Jesus beaten and swollen, submissive, and maybe seems a little cowardly, kind of curled up under that old purple robe. And I can picture Jesus lifting his head and looking straight into Pilate's eyes and saying in verse 11, you would have no authority over me at all, emphatically, unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivers me over to you has the greater sin. So who's in control here? See, God is sovereign over everything that is happening. But as you can see here, Jesus affirms that there's also human responsibility. And as he speaks, something happens. The one on trial pronounces judgment on the criminals conducting the proceedings against him. Jesus moves from being the defendant to the true role as judge. In this word, he pronounces judgment upon people. Reasons from the fact that Pilate has authority over him only under the sovereignty of God. Look, I think this is important, and let's take a little bit of a tangent. I've struggled with this a lot over the last two years. We whine and we complain about the government. What does the text say? Who has the authority? Who truly has the authority? That's why Jesus says at the end of this verse that the one who has handed him over to Pilate has a greater sin. This is an important look at human responsibility and divine sovereignty and divine providence. But here, Jesus is making a distinction between what Pilate is doing and what the Jews are doing, and the Jews are maliciously trying to kill Jesus. And Pilate is an unprincipled coward faced with an undesirable choice. I will admit, he is between a rock and a hard place. But Jesus can see that Pilate knows that he is innocent and that he doesn't know how to calm down the Jews. And what Pilate's sin is, is allowing himself to be corrupted by the pressure the Jews are putting on himself. And that's a warning for us all. When we know that there's a right thing to do, yet we don't do it because we're afraid of how someone else will think about us. And that's sin. It's called fear of man. The worst sin, however, is that the Jews actively are seeking to kill Jesus, but Pilate is still guilt of collusion with these murderers. And God uses all of this to accomplish what? His will. He's using the wicked government and the wickedness of those people yelling, crucify Jesus, to accomplish his will. And God uses all of that for the salvation of his own. And behind Pilate's power, Jesus makes it known and discerns the hand of God. This is a typical of biblical truth. Even the worst of evil can't escape the outer boundaries of God's love. Yet God's sovereignty never mitigates the responsibility and guilt of humanity. 
who, appro- who, who appropriate under divine sovereignty. While their voluntary decisions and their evil rebellions doesn't make God complacent, God is the one who is in authority. No matter how bad the situation may be, the alternative is far worse if God is not one in authority. I don't know all the answers to the why. I do know who's in charge. If God just outmaneuvered his enemies like a strategic game, I love playing strategic games. It's all about outmaneuvering the other guy. And if that is all that God is playing, if all he is doing is trying to outmaneuver his enemies or just outwit his enemies, whose evil sets, whose evil sets both the agenda and the space then? Then the mission for the son to die for fallen sinners turns out to be just an afterthought. But Pilate's authority was given to him from above to accomplish his will, that he would be crushed for our iniquities, as Isaiah says, as my brother Dave read earlier today. So there's another question that is posed in verses 12 to 16a. Caesar or Jesus, as the people hear these words, In verse 12, Pilate didn't necessarily understand all that Jesus said, but he was convinced that Jesus didn't do anything worth being killed for. That includes the sedition and the blasphemy that these people were saying. But then the people come and they kind of manipulate uh, Caesar a little bit, and they say, well, hey, you know... You know, know, Pilate, if if you're really a friend... If you're really a friend of Caesar, you wouldn't allow this. Can you hear the manipulation that's going on? Essentially, this is the age-old statement that I've heard so many times. If you love me, you'll do this for me. The Jews bully Pilate with threatening charge that to release Jesus would be disloyalty to Caesar because Jesus has claimed to be king. And really, Pilate was between two hard places, because as we look at history, Tiberius Caesar was a very suspicious person, and the Jews had already sent a letter complaining about Pilate. But there's a lot of irony here again. In order for the Jews to execute Jesus, they had to make themselves out to be loyal subjects to Caesar than the hated Roman official Pilate. They show their slavery to sin with that one statement. In verse eight, or chapter 8, 34, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. But it also shows some major hypocrisy because in John 8, 33, a verse before that, it says, they answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will come become free? See, the Jews who would have been expected to seek the kingdom of God profess, profess the very opposite. They profess zeal and loyalty to the kingdom of Rome, who they actually hate. Obviously, they hate Jesus so much more. They are so committed to destroying Jesus that they mouth concern for Caesar. So let me ask you this, where does your loyalty land? 
If someone were to look at your life, hear your words, look at your bank account, if they had unique look, if they had a unique look into your hearts, if they could look at your net, your Netflix account and see what you've been watching, if they can look at your history on your browser, where do your loyalties land? What kingdom are you professing? Pilate comes in, in verse 4, he says, Behold your king. And Pilate gives a sarcastic insult directed at this murderous Jewish mob. And how do they respond in verses 15 to 16? The Jews cry out yet again that Jesus needs to be crucified, has to be crucified. And when Pilate taunts them, asking if they want their king to be crucified, they assert that they have no king but Caesar. And this is heart-wrenching. Because here are the people that are claiming to be people of God. And they're coming and they're saying, uh, no, Caesar's our king. It's heart-wrenching. So again, I ask you, where do your loyalties lie? See, Pilate clearly has no respect for either Jesus or the Jews. But in their reply, the Jews repudiate uh, repudiate the promises of the Old Testament concerning the kingdom of God and the king from the line of David. They repudiate God's kingdom and God's king so tantamously to a reputation of God himself. Pilate delivers Jesus to be crucified, and they take him away, as we see in verse verse 16a. Before I present to you the king of kings and lord of lords, What is your response to this? Do you see how they treated him? What do we do with all of this? Who else deserved to be honored and and glorified more than Jesus? What kind of king and judge is he? And I will say this to you, and this is kind of the big idea, the main point. As I look at this text... Jesus is not only the main character of this doxological drama of redemptive history. He is its writer, director, and producer. You see the Savior of the world being whipped like an animal, crowned with thorns, mocked, smitten, rejected by his own people, unjustly condemned by a a judge who saw nothing wrong with him and then given up to go through one of the most worst ways that any person could possibly die. All this happened, but he is still the eternal Son of God, whom the Father's angels delighted to honor at his birth. This is the one who came into the world to save sinners, and after living a blameless life, died Surely the sun never shone on a more wondrous sight since the day of its creation. See, John's account of the crucifixion is filled with gospel paradox and glorious providence. On the surface, Jesus seems to be completely a subject to the whims of an approval-seeking Pilate and a frenzied mob of Jews. But when Pilate labeled Jesus king of, king of the Jews, he was saying more than he even could possibly know. 
Jesus was never more sovereign than when he submitted to death on the cross. This is why the refrain to fulfill the scriptures runs throughout the Gospel of John. Nothing was left to chance. Nothing. No enemies, even as they acted according to their own violations, their own violence, did anything that was unanticipated or outside the purpose of God's sovereign and providential redemptive plan. This is the climax of all human history. Jesus is not only the main character in this doxological drama of redemptive history, he is its writer, director, and producer. And I had to Google what a producer actually does. What kind of king do you want? One who will destroy us like Caesar or one who loves us enough to be destroyed on our behalf? They put Jesus, the judge, on trial, but even then he pronounced judgment on the wicked. To whom will you entrust yourself to? Do we want to rely on human judges or human rulers, or do we want a just judge? Do we want one who will judge in accordance with righteousness? If we seek a righteous judge, the only one available is Jesus. And it's because of that that we can weather the storm of injustice in this world. Because he does, he is coming back. He is coming back. This is our hope. See, Jesus is not only the main character of this drama. He is the writer, director, and producer. So what is your response to this? How could, how, uh, how could you do anything else but give thanks for what God has done for your soul? How can I give thanks in all circumstances? How can I give of myself selflessly? How can I serve my church and my fellow members? How can I give of my finances sacrificially as an act of worship? How can I change from a crusty old heart that complains all the time and finds something wrong in about every other way? How can I love my church with all of her imperfections? How can I go tell my coworker, my neighbor, the other mother at the park, or the other father at the park, or the parents at the pickup line at school, the gospel of Jesus Christ? How can I love other church members that I just, uh, you know, Or maybe they've hurt you in some way. How can I forgive those who seem unforgivable? And I look how they treated Jesus. And I look at the one who, has, who was deserving of it all and gave it up for his own. And I look at how he has loved me and how he has enabled me to love others in the same way. You know what that should do? It should overflow. It should overflow. It should overflow in my worship. It should overflow as I leave this place and I interact with my coworkers that are a pain in my behind. I don't have any of those. Because you all know them. 
just to clarify. We have great staff here at Nolwood. Reiterate that a little bit more. Talking about you. There should be a difference in my day-to-day life as I reflect upon what Jesus has done for me. As I embrace suffering, as I embrace persecution, and folks, persecution is coming. It's not here yet. It's coming, though. As bad things happen, as that person rubs me the wrong way, as I interact with my spouse or my children, as my child slams the door in my face, as I'm trying to have a conversation with them, Again, that's never happened to me, so. I'm talking about you. The, that, that overflow of our worship should push us ultimately as we go out seeking to tell others of who Jesus is and what he has done for sinners like you and like me. But in all of this, I look at this narrative, I look at this account of John's account of Jesus' life, And I see Jesus is not only the main character of this drama, he is its writer, its director, and producer. And as I face the storms of this life, that changes everything. Let us continue to worship our awesome God. Awesome God, we just thank you today.